Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. G'day, I'm Matthew Sidney from Dubbo, New South Wales, Australia, and you're listening to Dark Putin, a podcast about Canada's creepier side, with hosts Mike and Scott. So kick off your thongs and grab yourself a stubby. Don't forget the meat pile of sauce, as it's time for some Dark Putin. Yeah, thanks to Matthew from Dubbo in Australia for that intro. Uh, if there was an Australian Dark Putin, would it be... Uh, would it be Dark Shrimp on the Barbie or... Dark Dundee. Dark Dundee. That's not a knife. That's a knife. That's not a podcast. Hello, nice lady. <laughs> I'm not a very... guy. I, I need to practice my Australian accent. You got Newfie down. Well, I am half Newfie. Well, just saying. You got it and you nailed it. Right? Yeah. But Matthew is from Dubbo. Potato, potato. Okay. So I'm Mike Brown, creator and host of Dark Poutine. With me as usual is my good friend, co-host, sound engineer, uh, pillow-hugging guy who uh, hates mushrooms on his pizza, Scott Hemingway. Oh, I hate, I hate them on everything. You're not a fun guy. I no comment. No comment. No comment. Okay. So uh, thanks to Janie for our last topic, uh, the Mindy Tran case. Uh, it was a good reminder when she emailed about that. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Janie. Um, we did learn a ton about this case, uh, that case, and hoped uh, that you did too. And uh, we started up a Patreon page, which I thought, no, nobody's going to do any. Like, nobody's <laughs> going to give us money to do this. And uh, you know what? Uh, so far, as of this recording, 10 people have. Keep them coming, folks. Actually, I've, 11. I, I've got, uh, I've put a down payment on a Bentley. On a Bentley? Don't let me down, people. But wait. But wait. Well, I, I can't take, I, I, it's non-refundable. Well, you can't have it anyway. Oh, geez. Yeah. So Adam P. from Australia, yes, you were the first one. Yes, we got your voicemail and we'll play it on the next one. Uh, Mary Virginia, she's the only listener we know of who has her own swag. Marie, Marie Helene from Montreal. Bonjour, Marie. Uh, thank you. Uh, merci, I should say. Oui, oui. Farron, who's active in every true crime group that we are. Farron, you rock. Obvs. Uh, we saw your little fella had a bit of a, a, a hospital visit last night. So it was last night when we're recording this audio, and we hope he's okay. Um, Jessica from the Asian Madness podcast, she's all the way from Taipei. She gave us a little cashola. Is that in Australia as it well? It is not oh. in Australia. Uh, I'm not good at math. Nope. <laughs> nor, nor geography. <laughs> Beck and Tyler from the Minds of Madness podcast have become patrons, as has Jamie from the Murderish podcast. Leanna from Las Mordia podcast, Ood from Occulti Veritatis. You know what? To get, like, uh, such love from other podcasters has been awesome. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. Right? Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of a nice feeling. Yeah. 
uh, and Wes, my old lunch buddy from Langley, uh, and he, uh, he and I have known each other for quite some time. He used to look at, uh, my scanned lunch online. I will get into that at some other time, but, yeah, well, uh, no, I'm, cause I, like you have in the show notes, you have lunch in brackets, your lunch buddy in brackets that does raise questions on. Well, that's my... what it was about. That was about Mike, Mike Brown's lunch. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I, I to, eagerly await. Well, I it's still there. If you go to mikebrown.com slash lunch, uh, you can see my stupid old <laughs> scanned lunches from like 2001. <laughs> anyway, that, that sort of made me internet famous at the time. <laughs> anyway, it's kind of stupid. Uh, of course, uh, I want to thank my bigger little brother, Baltic Warfrat, a.k.a. Phil, You'll hear from Phil at the end of this podcast. He was also kind enough to provide us with a bit of an outro. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's an interesting cat. So if you want to become a patron of our podcast, uh, you can find us on Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, of course. And speaking of Patreon, I had a great Skype call with Jamie of Murderish. That's Jamie with an I of Murderous. She and I shot the poo about podcasting and what got us into it. And if you want to hear us, you become a patron of her page at patreon.com slash murderish. I'm going to have to get on that. Yes, you may. You, you should do that. I shall. All right, let's get to it. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Your hosts are in no way experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We sometimes get our facts completely wrong. Usually me. I was told earlier that I had some dates wrong in another podcast, but I'm not admitting to it in this one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, we just want to entertain you with the stories we tell. Uh, So put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an animal bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. talking about what has been called one of the most horrific crime sprees Canadians have ever seen. On June 4th, 2014, in Moncton, New Brunswick, between 7.46pm and 8.05pm, a gunman ambushed multiple members of the RCMP, killing three and seriously wounding two others. The dead officers are Constable Fabrice Georges Javaudin, 45 years old, a husband and stepfather to an 11-year-old girl. Constable Dave Joseph Ross, 32 years old, husband and father of a 20-month-old son. His wife was pregnant on the day that Constable Ross died. Constable Douglas James Larch, 40 years old, husband and father of three girls who were, at the time, 9, 8, and 4. The two wounded officers are Eric Stéphane J. Dubois, who was 48 at the time of the shooting. He was among the first officers to respond to the 911 calls about the man with a gun in the neighborhood. Constable Marie Darlene Gogouin, 
was in a neighborhood nearby and hearing her fellow officers needed assistance, she rushed to the scene. I've not mentioned the shooter's name yet as I felt these names should be the first you hear. They are the ones who should be celebrated as heroes as they died in the line of duty responding to a call that went more than sideways. I have family and close friends who are police officers, so when this happened, uh, it got the t country's attention. The fact that multiple officers were shot that day facilitated a full inquiry into the events. I found a huge amount of information, more than ever, but we'll try to keep this helping of dark poutine digestible. The perpetrator in this case was a 24-year-old man who up until that day had no criminal record, none. His name was Justin Christian Bork, or Burke. I guess his father pronounces it that way, so I will too. It looks like Bork, like Ray Bork, yeah, the yeah. hockey player. Uh, he is the third of seven children. His parents raised him in a strict Catholic environment. He was homeschooled by his mother. Justin didn't like this and yelled at his mom about wanting a normal life, but obviously that didn't happen. Nope. His father sometimes worked two jobs to help make ends meet. Justin Burke himself said there was never any abuse in his family home. Uh, Justin started mowing his neighbor's lawns for money when he was eight. He used his cash to buy video games. I used to mow lawns when I was a kid. That was my first job. I can relate to the buying video games. You did. Yeah. You're averse. And I, and I, and it's I because you're averse to work. No, I mowed lawns. Sure, okay. Once or twice. So between the ages of 11 and 15, Justin immersed himself in video games, and he did have a few friends in the neighborhood. So far, normal kid. Yeah, well... Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the whole—not every normal kid's homeschooled. That's why I was I was hesitant. But like, a normal kid in his interests and likes and stuff. Yeah. So at fifteen, a friend taught him to shoot using a Chinese-made AK-47 knockoff CM SKS Type 56 semi-automatic rifle. For Justin, this was a simple leap from the violent video games he was playing and. From that point on, he was obsessed with firearms. Later on, he even started repairing firearms for friends. So not so normal now, all of a sudden. <laughs> a very quick transition into right. AK-47s. Well, you know, Call of Duty to AK-47. I still play a hell of a lot of video games. I have no inclination. No. So he knew his way around a weapon. Yeah. He started watching reruns of the dramatic TV series, Tour of Duty, that I remember and Scott doesn't. I, I, I vaguely remember it. I don't think I watched it at the time, so that's why it doesn't I did. Uh, come back to me. That fo It follows a, a platoon of U.S. soldiers during the Vietnam conflict. At 16, Justin discovered a love for music by bands like Megadeth, Guns N' Roses, and Metallica. So right up my alley when I was a kid. Yeah, I diverge dramatically. Mr. Hip Hop over yeah. here. Yuck. Yep. Hop. He made it. He made it. Yes. No, no. So anyway, uh, Justin loved Ronnie James Dio and Megadeth's Dave Mustaine. At the same time, he started getting drunk and stoned as much as he could. He stopped going to Mass. So no longer going to Catholic Mass. His parents were worried about him, uh, but Justin was just finding his groove. Speaking of his groove, he picked up a guitar and began learning thrash metal licks. Also at 16, applied for the Canadian military, but was refused as he didn't have a high school diploma. He applied and was rejected again at 18 for the same reason. I find it interesting. Like, did he think? Like, if, if he hadn't graduated, had he thought something had changed in those two years? 
I guess not. Like, uh, maybe they won't see that I didn't grad. Maybe they stopped asking if I've grad. You know. Yeah. But he did receive, receive his GED or general education diploma at 19. My buddy Malcolm calls it a good enough degree. <laughs> well done. Yep. Good well enough. Well done, Malcolm. Good enough, right, Malcolm? <laughs> anyway, uh, Justin was dating a few girls and partying a lot. His confidence grew. You know, he was growing up. Yeah, yeah. Justin was seen as generous, energetic, and outspoken, albeit a bit scatterbrained at times. Uh, he wanted everyone to be his friend, but later said people took advantage of his generosity. Although people thought he was generally not a bad guy, there were some apparent cracks showing. When Justin drank, he had a hard time keeping his anger in check. Mm. I can't relate to that at all. Yeah, the one I used to drink, I can very much relate. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anger, but I was, I was the. You don't know me. I love you. Uh, you don't fucking know me. Yeah, see, I would have been angry at you. Yeah, rightly so. So Justin quit drinking at 21. Three years before that fateful June evening, he used marijuana in place of alcohol and stayed stoned a lot of the time. He said it helped him to cal calm down and allowed him to get some sleep between shifts. He worked at a bunch of menial labor jobs at a grocery store, warehouses, and a local lumberyard. Lumberyard. <laughs> I'd like to work at a lumberyard. <laughs> a lumberyard. Sounds like something your daughter Bibby would say. <laughs> you work at the lumberyard. <laughs> Sounds like a blast. Yeah. Stacking all your yumber. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, so he also worked at the co-op, you know, because it's New Brunswick. And uh, for six days prior to his crime, he worked at the night shift, or we like to call it the back shift, at Rolly's Wholesale Warehouse. Uh, in December 2012, Justin's parents had had enough of him. Uh, they'd asked him not to bring any more guns home, but he ignored them and brought more home. Uh, they asked him to move out, so he did. Hmm. Justin did some couch surfing uh, at friends' places until he and four others rented a trailer home in a trailer park in February of 2013. So it's like the trailer park, boys. <laughs> like getting drunk and smoking yeah, weed and it, shooting guns. Yeah. It's like IRL trailer park, boys. <laughs> There's been no bubbles. This time it's yubbles. Yubbles. <laughs> yubbles works in the yumber yard. Yeah. Stack, uh, stacking his yumber. Yeah, we should get shirts just to say, <laughs> I'll stack your gumber. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> back to the serious story. My yumper brings all the boys to the yard. Uh, no. People started moving out of the trailer for one reason or another, leaving Justin holding the bag for the rent on the entire place. Right. He had to pawn his guitar to pay the bills. Folks who owed him rent money didn't come through, and Justin lost his beloved guitar. He was unable to spring it from guitar jail, as an old friend of Ben used to say. <laughs> yeah, I, he, I used to bail out some of those guitars. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, my buddy Ben said, you know, every time he needed cash, he had to put his guitar in jail for a while. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I remember purchasing a few uh, yeah. guitars from guitar jail. Oh, sad. Well, not for me. Justin was distraught at the loss of his guitar, probably the Scott, and that later... <laughs> so it was Scott's fault that all this happened. <laughs> no! <laughs> Separated by a few kilometers. 4,000. It's not like I would... What's a simple, like, 6,000 kilometers? It's not, it's not like I would trek out to... Hey, I feel like buying a cheap guitar. 
I'm going to go to Moncton. So I'm spending a couple grand getting out there to buy a $400 Squire Telecaster. Do you even know where Moncton is? Uh, it's in Australia, right? No. no. Uh. So anyway, uh, yeah, Justin was distraught at the lo- loss of his guitar uh, that had been such a part of his life, but those feelings were easily extinguished with another toke. He smoked weed all day, and when he could afford it, anyway, and he was miserable and agitated without it. The bills piled up. Even though his buddy Mike moved in about three months before the shootings to help him out, Justin paid the majority of the bills. In mid-May of 2014, Justin was working 16 hours a day and sleeping only about two hours per night. That's not helpful. Yeah, yeah, that's not that's not going to uh, help your organ. Nope. He could not afford to buy enough weed to keep his anxiety away. Justin was exhausted. He spiraled into depression, anger, and agitation. The world sucked. Mm-hmm. He started ranting about foreign workers taking jobs from hardworking Canadians and was pissed off with the friends he said had taken advantage of him. He'd go on endlessly and angrily about how the government was screwing everybody with their regulations on guns. Yeah, so much externalizing for his problems. Everybody else is to blame. Everybody yep. else is to blame. Yep, typical. Yep, typical of the people who lose their baloney. Yeah. Uh, he said he ate at cops, so it's all the cops' fault, of apparently. Of course, of course. He was convinced they were all corrupt and working for the politicians who uh, were helping to keep everyone else in check. Mm. And without weed to calm him down, Justin's head spun like a frog in a blender, and I guess his cheese was slipping off his cracker. It was. Justin had a conversation with his dad, Victor Burke, two days before the shootings on June second, two 2014. Justin told his father that he wanted to fight authority because he was being oppressed. I'm sorry, man. That's not oppression, dude. Yeah. Well, anyway. In his mind. Yeah, in his mind. Justin said, they better not try to stop me. I am armed. Yeah. Yep. He also said that he would hide in the woods to elude capture while taking out as many cops as he could, claiming he would never surrender. God, imagine having your kids saying this to you. Yep. The day of the shooting, Justin's dad, Victor Burke, picked Justin up to come over for a visit. His parents were worried. They wanted to have have some face time with him mm-hmm. uh, and try to help if they could. Yeah. Justin went on the computer at their home and made his last Facebook post at 4.37 p.m. None of the words were his, but they were lyrics of a song, uh, Hook and Mouth by Megadeth. I'll just read them here. I'm not going to sing it because... Yeah, can you sing it in a new fee? Yeah. No. no. <laughs> I could sing it in... I like it. I just love your Newfie accent. That's yeah, all Carol, Carol likes that too. Oh, a cockroach in... No. 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 So, a cockroach in the co- concrete, courthouse tan and beady eyes. A slouch with fallen arches, purging truths into great lies. A little man with a big eraser, changing history. Procedures that he's programmed to, all he hears and sees. Altering the facts and figures, events and every issue. Make a person disappear and no one will ever miss you. Rewrites every story, every poem that ever was. Eliminates incompetence and those who break the laws. Follow the instructions of New Way's evil book of rules. Replacing rights and wrongs, the files and records in the schools. You say you've got the answers? Well, who asked you anyway? Ever think it was meant to be this way? Don't try and fool us. We know the worst is yet to come. I believe my kingdom will come. 
so yeah, so that was Justin's last post. It's still live. So if you search Justin Burke, you can see it there on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And as of this writing, it's been shared over 2,200 times. Jeez, that's concerning. Right? That means there's like but potentially 2,200 people who uh, agree with... Uh, well, we can't, we can't really determine their... You can't. I looked at them all. I looked at all 2,200. Scott is not an honest person. I'm a very honest person. I honestly didn't do what I just said I did. There you go. So anyway, uh, Justin left his house, uh, telling his par- left his parents' house, telling them he was going to work. He went to his buddy Nathan's place and asked them for a lift home. On the way, they stopped to buy bullets. As you would. I guess. At Better Buy Sports on 950 Mountain Road in Moncton at 6.14 p.m. that evening, Justin purchased three boxes of, of 20 rounds of three oh eight ammunition and 10 rounds of 12-gauge buckshot. He specifically asked for full metal jacket ammunition when purchasing the three oh eight. His pal Nathan paid, uh, with Justin promising to pay him back. I don't know if he ever got paid back for this. Yeah, I'm going to say no, probably. Justin was dropped off at home at 13 Pioneer Avenue. Uh, Justin said he was tired and he wanted to hit the sack. At 718, the first 911 call came. 911. Um, I'm just wondering, there's a guy walking up the road with a uh, gun on his side and he's got a case that's got bullets showing. Okay, what and he's long? Uh, 58, uh, Pioneer Avenue. Okay. Moncton, New Brunswick. Where about on Pioneer Avenue, are you? He's towards the end. Which end? He's walking, uh, I, I live at 51, so it'd be like going at the end of the street, and he walked right by us, and you can see the bullets in something, and he was reaching towards the back of it as he got further down. Happy? I don't know. Happy? He's all dressed army-wise, okay. like he's got army pants on, fucking, and, and it looks awesome. like a rifle or something, like I don't. And how old is yeah. this guy here? Oh, I don't know. He's probably in his 30s, but I, I've never recognized him. I've lived here for a year, and I, I've i never seen him, but I don't think it's... He's wearing camouflage clothing? Okay. Yeah, and he's got like a bandana around his head. I just, whatever. Okay. He's dressed all in camo, and I don't think it's normal with a bunch of kids outside walking down the road of a trailer park with a guy I've never seen him here. Okay, just one moment, I'm going to transfer to another line. Just one moment. Two units were dispatched quickly. Charlie 2391. Go ahead. 1071, can you start making your way to Pioneer? There's a male walking. He's got two golfs, and he's got bullets on his back, like a like a strap. And he's walking towards the end of Pioneer. Copy? And four. Alpha 19, can you assist? And four. He would be wearing camouflage clothing. Constable J. Duaron was the first on the scene at 7.23 p.m. Witnesses told him that the heavily armed man had gone into the woods down a walking trail. Duaron pursued cautiously on foot. Sensing something was wrong, the police officer took cover behind a telephone pole. It was the only thing he could find and called for a backup and a canine unit or PDS, police dog services. That's what they call it in the RCMP. Mm. Duaron was joined by Constable Johnston. Constable Dave Ross was also responding in his SUV. Uh, he was on his way 
the two officers on the scene already told people in the neighborhood to go back to their homes and they were not safe outdoors. As they'd been trained to do, the responding RCMP officers called for a perimeter to be set up uh, to contain the armed man. So as people arrived, they all positioned themselves around the area uh, so he couldn't get away. Constable Mathieu Daigle was the first to catch sight of the gunman at 7.38 in the forested area about 200 meters away, walking slowly, stopping now and again to listen. Daigle said it appeared as though the armed man was hunting. Well, he was. Yep. Just not for... Uh, Animals. Yeah. Constable Daigle entered the woods to follow the unknown subject with the second officer, Robert Nickerson, joining him. Another couple of police entered the woods as well to join uh, Nickerson and Daigle. These were Constable Shelley Mitchell and Constable Fabrice Gavaudin. At 7.45, Daigle and Gavaudin were on the south side of a home on Bromfield Court. The dog hadn't arrived yet. That would have been helpful in the situation as they had somebody in the woods. Uh, but the RCMP officers were closing on a suspect from various angles in the woods. At 7.46, all hell broke loose. Constable Daigle moving toward the man with the rifle yelled, Hey! Witnesses observed the camouflage suspect go down on his belly and aim his rifle toward the two officers who were crouched and walking toward him. Constable Daigle saw the muzzle flashes as the man started shooting at he and Gavaudin. Constable Gavaudin was heard yelling on the police radio, He's shooting at me, he's shooting at me, as he ran. The shooter changed position and fired three more rounds at Constable Gavaudin, only 30 meters away. Gavaudin stopped in his tracks, turned, placed his hand over his head, stumbled and collapsed. He died almost instantly. Oh, boy. The shooter simply got up, walked off between the two houses and headed down Mailhot Avenue. As Constable Dave Ross was arriving at Broomfield Court in his SUV, the the shooter was walking down Mailhot Avenue. Uh, so Ross saw him and a resident who was pulling into his driveway stopped and snapped some photos of the armed man walking down the street. You could see Constable Ross's SUV in the same photo coming toward him. Mm. Uh, the man who snapped the photos thought it was funny looking and he wanted to share with his friends, like, who's this crazy guy with the yeah, guns? Uh, yeah, I'm sure not funny looking, like, haha, there's a gun, but, you weird, know, just go, what's going on here? What the heck is that? Yeah. So at 7.48, Constable Ross called on the radio that he could see the suspect and was about to take him down. Here's some audio of that. We're getting some calls. They can see the SOC walking down Mailhot, walking towards Hildegard. 901, equal 48. Got a visual. We'll be on in a second. Constable Ross turned on his lights and drew his pistol as he rapidly closed in on the gunman in his SUV. Ross fired two shots through the windshield toward the shooter, missing with both. Seeing the RCMP SUV, the shooter stepped off the curb and fired between four and seven quick shots at the SUV. Four bullets went through the windshield of Constable Ross's vehicle. The call every cop dreads came across the radio. That's Officer Down. Constable Ross was hit three times. He took bullets to the thumb of his gun hand, his head, and his left shoulder. Constable Ross died instantly from his head wound. The time was 7.49, so three minutes had elapsed. Already deaths. Two. Yeah. Two police officers yeah. dead. 
A neighbor watching over his fence spoke to the shooter asking if he and his family should go inside. The shooter replied firmly, probably. What a bizarre interaction. Right. Uh, another resident further down the road also came in close contact with the armed man. She called 911. Listen, um, just at Mailhot and Foxwood off of Hildegard, there's yep. a man with a gun and in um, camouflage, and he's yelling that he's gonna, he doesn't want to kill civilians, only government officials. Okay, where is he's the fire? He's behind, he went in behind the fire station on Hildegard. On Hildegard behind just, the fire hall? The fire hall, yes. Just now? Yes, and we just heard three shots. Okay, yeah, we're aware of the situation. Thank you, ma'am. Okay, thank Thanks, you. The man continued down the street yelling, come get me cops. Constable Martine Benoit arrived on the scene near the fire hall and witnesses walked up to her and pointed toward where they'd seen the man run. The man started firing on Constable Benoit right away, and witnesses heard bullets whizzing by them as they scampered away to safety. Benoit's car was disabled by gunfire, and she could not move it. Constable Benoit gave her position over the radio, stating she was under fire. Constable Eric Dubois, hearing Benoit was in trouble, uh, drove up, and using Dubois's car for cover, Benoit was able to get out of her car, and she hid with Dubois behind his cruiser as the shooter continued raining fire down on them. Dubois was shot trying to determine the gunman's position. He ran immediately into the fire hall for medical assistance. During the lull in the shooting, Benoit moved Dubois's cruiser into the fire hall as well so she could be safe in there. Mm -hmm. Smart. During the same volley that struck Dubois, Constable Marie Gogwin was arriving on scene. Uh, she had been in another neighborhood but responded... Her car was hit multiple times, and she too was wounded. Both Gagwin and Dubois were transported to hospital in separate police vehicles, as it was apparent that no ambulances were coming into this war zone. Yeah, no kidding. Again, the shooter simply walked off. He was using a long rifle, and even though police had returned fire with their pistols, he had the range advantage. At 801, another resident in the neighborhood took another picture of the gunman walking down the road. We'll show all these in our show notes. At 8.04, Constable Doug Larch arrived at Mailhot in Islington. Constable Larch was a plainclothes officer. He'd returned to the detachment for a shotgun before attending. He was wearing body armor, so uh, they mostly only had pistols and shotguns at this point, and this guy had a three oh eight rifle, so a deer rifle, well, something, you know, along those lines, yeah. or that knockoff Chinese. AK. Yeah. He clearly had the advantage. So Larch had his service pistol with him as well. Uh, Larch got out of his car to warn a motorcycle rider to turn around. As the rider drove away, he heard gunshots. Another 911 call at 805 captured the gunshots. 911 there's two, there's a car on the street, two firing back. Yeah, it's a, probably a police officer, sir. No, oh, okay, maybe. you still see him, sir? Yeah, he's behind the trees. I behind can see the him trees on, on 32 Mail Hot? Across the street Across from 32 Mail Hot. 
Constable Larch was injured by a round that had gone through his vehicle. The gunman repositioned himself from one side of the house to the other. Larch managed to get back up and fire his service pistol a total of seven times at the gunman and missed with all of them. Larch was killed by another shot to the head. Oh, man. The time was 8.07. Just over 20 minutes, three RCMP officers were dead and another two wounded, with the shooter still on the loose. The gunman fled into the woods and officers did not pursue him any further at this point. They held their positions and waited for more backup. I think that was wise at that point. Yeah, they, d they don't have the advantage. No. You, uh, no. Walking ducks? Yeah. Uh, the ERT, or emergency response team, arrived, as did more uniformed officers. They, they closed in their perimeter a little bit. And they knew this guy was in this wooded area. But he wasn't going to get away. Uh, around 9.15, pictures of the gunman walking away from the scene uh, of the shootings uh, on Hildegard started showing up on the news reports and spread like wildfire on social media. A 911 call was placed by Victor Burke at 9.40 p.m. 911, where is your emergency? No, uh, I'm the father of the gunman. Okay. Uh, well, I'm not sure if, it, if, it, if they arrested him. Sir, who's your son? Justin Burke. Justin Burke. Why do you say he's the gunman? Well, I don't know. That's what I heard. Somebody just said that's who it was. Okay. He, was, he was quite upset tonight. And, okay. and, uh, What's your name, sir? Victor Burke. Victor Burke? Yeah. Okay. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from home. Which is? 54 Shirley Avenue. Okay. One second, sir. Okay. Yeah. We're not, we're not sure, but we want to make sure... Okay, sir, we're just going to contact... He lives, at, he lives at 13 Pioneer Avenue in, in Marsh's trailer park. Now, he didn't go to work tonight, and he was upset, and... Uh, okay. Yeah, so... Does he have a cell phone, sir? No, he has no phone no at all. No cell phone, eh? Okay. No. Any idea where he would go? Well, he was at, last time I talked to him was earlier tonight, okay. around 7 o'clock, around 6.30. Okay. Did he mention anything that would lead you to believe that he would do something like this? Yeah. Or he did? What did yeah. he say? Well, he, he, he's upset about the police. He's, you know, he's having a hard time. He's got anger uh, issues. issues? Okay. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he's angry at the cops, and, you know, because, because of things, of certain things, and I thought... Oh no. Okay. And he owns, you know, he owns weapons too, eh? So, but I usually goes hunting with, with him, but I, I don't know if he'd do that. But I'm just saying, somebody just, I just heard that, that my wife is crying, she's upset. Okay. So. Oh, I understand. Okay, sir, don't hang up. I'm just yeah. going to transfer you to another line. I will be with you. That's right it. Yeah. Okay, don't that's hang him. Don't that's, hang up, okay? That's him. What do you mean, that's him? A man with two rifle walks, several shots fired. Right. Okay, but you're not seeing him right now, are you? Oh, yeah, I see him on the time transcript. Uh, you see the, him on the paper. Okay. So you're you're positively IDing him? Mm-hmm. Okay, just one moment, sir, okay? He's got a bandana. And got... Sir, don't hang up, okay? Okay. Don't hang up. The shooter was positively identified as 24-year-old Justin Burke by his own father. That had to be a tough call for him to make. I can't imagine having to do that. Yeah. A massive manhunt was underway, obviously. An RCMP command center was set up at the Moncton Coliseum a few kilometers away. Its parking lot was filled with police vehicles uh, attending to assist, tents and the whole schmear. Yep. Police were not only involved in the hunt for a cop killer, they had to preserve the multiple crime scenes and investigate these concurrently with the, con the killer uh, 
presumably still nearby. Yeah, how complicated would that be? No kidding. Uh, they didn't know whether he was just going to pop out and, and gun down more RCMP doing their job. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, RCMP members and police officers from different agencies arrived from across Atlantic and Central Canada to lend a hand. And so from the later RCMP's independent review of the shootings, here are some of the resources that were employed in the search for Justin Burke. Of the hundreds of police officers arriving in Moncton, there were eventually 100 tactical team members on scene. Three of the four RCMP Atlantic Region emergency response teams, as well as those from sea and national divisions, were deployed. The municipal police forces of Bathurst, Miramichi, Fredericton, and St. John also contributed their tactical teams. Providing direct support to these teams were six scribes, four radio technicians, 14 emergency medical response team members, 11 PDS teams, or police dog services teams, and EDU and special eye personnel. I don't know what those are. Hmm. I am not a popo. I don't know these things. You are not in popo. Maybe, maybe a popo will call us or email us and let us know what that is. What, e- what EDU and special personnel, eye personnel are. Anyway, there were five RCMP tactical armored vehicles. Those are the ones that look like tanks, the Mm. cop cars that look like tanks, and aircraft from both RCMP air services and uh, chartered commercial carriers and Transport Canada providing tactical and logistical support. So that's a lot of... For small town Canada, like that's, it's a hell of a lot. Well, and... And, And needed. Well, yeah. So it's one guy who's like willing to kill police. What, what's he willing to do to anybody else? Yeah, everything and anything. Even though uh, it, it was said like earlier that, uh, you know, he, he claimed he was not out to kill anybody else other than government officials. But maybe the crazy person in his mind thinks everybody is a government official eventually, you know. And how are they to know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in their shoes, a man mowing down officers, you're going to conclude, like, he'll kill anybody. Absolutely. Uh, The manhunt took place over 29 hours. People in Moncton felt as though they were under siege. It ended after a woman called 911 and said she saw a scraggly-looking young man in combat fatigues drinking out of her garden hose behind her house. ERT surrounded the area. On June 5th, 2014, at 11.51 p.m., a crew member on board a Transport Canada aircraft detected a single human heat signature on his FLIR forward-looking infrared. Using night vision goggles, an ERT member detected the general area where Justin Burke was located. The officer called out, Police, come out with your hands up. Do it now. Yeah, no kidding. Justin Burke said, Okay, I give up. I'm coming out. Don't shoot. I'm done. Reminds me a lot of the uh, uh, Boston Marathon bombers and the uh, manhunt for those guys once that... uh, Yeah, well, they shot that guy a bunch of times, too. Yeah, yeah, but it was just kind of like there was that gunman on the loose and shooting at cops everywhere. But he just gave up, like... Yeah. You know, that was what, this is what weirds me out about this one is this guy just gives up. Well, you know what I think? I mean, it went on for 29 hours. So I think, I think by that point you're just exhausted and thirsty and hungry and. Yeah. But usually they do themselves in. Yeah. I I get the vibe that he wasn't a, uh, that wasn't his. Well, we'll see as we go here. Yeah. 
from the infrared camera, Burke could be seen walking toward the police officers, leaving his guns behind. He walked toward them, got into a prone position, and then the cops physically restrained him. He was in custody. On June 6th, at 10 minutes after midnight, Constable Morrison told Justin Burke that he was under arrest for murder and gave him the police caution and rights. Sort of like the Miranda rights for those in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, Once in a police car, Justin Burke was again told he was under arrest for three counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder, and he was read the police caution and the rights to counsel. So they're reading this guy his rights over and over again, obviously because they want to make sure that they have... uh, crossed their T's and dotted their I's, I think, at this point. They want to get a conviction with this guy. Clearly, yeah. Yep. Uh, when asked if he understood, Burke replied, I'll have to talk to my folks about that. We're pretty poor. Burke also stated, I know how much trouble I'm in. No shit, buddy. Yep. Burke's parents were contacted and suggested he use legal aid. I bet you my parents would have said the same thing. Hey, you got yourself into it? Get yourself out of it. Yeah, I have some... Uh... I have, uh, I am proud of, of his parents from what I heard and read. I mean, like first the dad calling, saying that that's my son. These are tough things to do. And then saying, get your own legal aid. Yep. Yep. They weren't enabling him anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's encouraging. Yeah. Justin Burke was transported to the Sackville RCMP detachment instead of the Kodiak RCMP detachment, most likely due to the fact that the officers he killed were all from Kodiak and they wanted to ensure his rights weren't trampled on. So again, more about possibly convicting this guy. Police interviewed Justin Burke at the Sackville detachment. He spoke freely about what drove him. Burke stated, like, I'm just going to tell you from person to person and The only reason I did this is because I see myself as, you know, a fish with his hook, uh, a hook in his mouth, you know. You either get work at a call center, go to college, put yourself further in debt, or either that, or you fight for your freedom with a couple of kicks and screams. I still, like, it's just, it's disgusting, and I I keep trying to think about, like, what, what freedom were you fighting for? The shackles of being an adult? I guess. Employment? Yeah, uh, responsibility. I, oh, no, you have to work in a call center. I've worked in a call center. Me too. It, it was a good job. Yep. Like, oh, just, it, it pisses me off. Yeah. Uh, he even admitted to thinking about what he was about to do for 20 minutes or so, prying to heading out the door of his trailer. I had some thinking to do, believe me. So you, so you made some thinking that? Loads of it. Loads of it. I sat there for about 20 minutes just just thinking, my, what are you thinking? My options. What were your options? Work at a crappy job like Rollies for the rest of my life. Go to college, get more debt, and probably not get a job out of it. And there's the other. He also spoke about what his initial plan was. You know that walking in the streets, you know, with guns, you know, will attract attention. Yeah. Right? So you knew, I assume you knew that people were going to call for the police. Mm-hmm. So was that what you were expecting, you know, them to yeah. come yeah. deep inside? Yeah, well really what I was going to initially do was set some gas stations on fire. But uh, I decided my bicycle was broken so I couldn't get there fast enough to do any real damage. So I just kind of winged it from there, I guess. 
So you said you wanted to set a, a gas station in fire. What was the idea behind this? Well, just think if I set three or four gas stations on fire, get away with it, maybe set a few more on fire, that is hurting the oil industry. What was the plan after the, uh, the oil, uh, the, 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 the gas tank? Well, obviously, no, I'm not a bad sniper, so. Sit and wait. Yeah, sit, wait, shoot, scoop. When asked if he would do anything differently, uh, Burke said, chuckling, no, all except for the fact that I would have brought some water. Fuck you. Yeah, uh, he knew exactly what he was doing, and he was not ashamed of it. When he was told that he had made history the day before and was asked how he felt about that, Justin Burke said, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I am feeling kind of good, but... I'm not looking forward to imprisonment, and he chuckles here. But again, I kind of knew that that was also a possibility, so I prepared for that mentally. Yeah, like it just, he just cries out for, uh, he's just some uh, he's unimportant a, SOB who wants to. narcissist. Yes, and, and just like it's more about uh, him finally being the center of attention, him finally yep. being popular in his brain. Yep. Which is more important than human lies to him. When I was writing and re researching this case, I read all of his uh, statement and his speechifying during the interview reminded me sort of of Timothy McVeigh, mm. the Oklahoma City bomber, uh, just the rants that he would go on about the government and all that kind of stuff. Interesting. Yeah, he raged against society, saw, saw himself as a one-man revolution against the authorities, as did this guy, so... I don't know. Like, I, I'm kind of surprised that nobody really has labeled this Justin Burke guy as a terrorist because it's exactly the same. Yeah, you uh, uh, call him a Muslim and it would just, everybody would be branding him a terrorist. Yep. And, and it would just be mass uh, hysteria yep. and, and all over the place. So to me, no difference. No. Just he's a terrorist. The actions were the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'll have lots of stuff in the show notes. One of the things I'm going to have is, is more of uh, uh, Justin Burke's video statement uh, on YouTube. Uh, that's pretty interesting to watch. Um, a regimental funeral was held on June 10th for the fallen police officers uh, with almost 3,000 officers attending from all over Canada. I know that some of my friends went who are also RCMP officers mm. and uh, and there was tons of other mourners in, in attendance as well. Uh, Justin Burke underwent a 28-day uh, court-ordered psychiatric assessment. It was determined that Mr. Burke did not meet the criteria for the defense of not criminally responsible due to a mental defect of some kind. Absolutely. And he was. it was determined he was fit to stand trial. Yep. So on August 8th, Burke entered guilty pleas in the three counts of first-degree murder and also on the two counts of attempted murder. So thank goodness we don't have to go to trial. Yeah. But you know what? Like, is he admitting to it because he's proud of it? I, th I think there's a strong component. I guess. On October 27th, he apologized to the families of the slain RCMP officers. Saying sorry or an apology is almost useless, but I am sorry, he said. There's nothing else to say. I think there's a... Uh, I'm, I almost went 
ranty, but I think there's a heck of a lot more to say. Oh, absolutely. And that's why uh, I say like him pleading guilty, I don't think was to try to do the right thing or save anybody, you know, costs and, and undue stress. He clearly, he clearly doesn't have empathy for anything. No. Because, yeah, there is a hell of a lot more, you could say. A hell of a lot more. For sure. I'm sorry. Yeah. Justin Burke was sentenced to two concurrent life sentences for the two attempted murders. And this, without the possibility of parole, uh, for 75 years for the three premeditated murders of Constables Gavadin, Ross, and Larch. And this was the harshest sentence in Canada ever given since the death penalty was abolished here. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. In the past weeks before this recording, the RCMP was ordered to pay $550,000 for being convicted under the Canadian Labour Code for not effectively protecting the officers in Moncton that day. So I read the whole report, and essentially uh, part of it was about supervision, and part of it was about the right kind of weapon. You know, they didn't oh, okay. they didn't have the right the right weaponry there to protect themselves and things oh. like that. All that's available for anybody to read online. So from a CBC News report, uh, this is how the fines break down. Uh, Judge Leslie Jackson uh, said the RCMP is being fined $100,000 and must pay 450000 in donations. So 300000 for scholarships to the University of Moncton in the names of the fallen Mounties, demonstrating dedication to the community. 60000 for Educational Trust Fund for the children of the Mounties who were killed, of course. Mm-hmm. 90000 to other organizations. Of this, 75000 will go to Threads of Life, Association for the Workplace Tragedy Family Support, a Canadian-registered charity. 15000 to the Valor Place Society, a temporary home away from home for all Canadian Forces members, RCMP families of the fallen, veterans and first responders along with the families who require medical treatment in Edmonton and live outside the area. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, some really, really great uh, allocation. Absolutely. There. Like, yeah, yeah. Some really great charities that went to or, or uh, in just places. So Nadine Larch, the widow of Constable Douglas Larch, made some comments outside the courthouse after the fines were levied against the RCMP last week. While driving here this morning, I drove by my three girls' school. I passed the area where my husband and his colleagues were killed. I drove by the RCMP monument. While most are able to move forward, we are left with daily reminders of what happened. It's hard. It's hard not to think and reflect. Lies were forever changed. Lies were forever changed because of people's decisions. My family's life has forever been changed. My three children are growing up without a daddy. No judgment will bring these men back. No judgment will ever make amends. No judgment will ever make reparations. No judgment will serve justice to what happened. No judgment will remedy the harm. No judgment will end me and my family's grief. I feel very strongly that my husband would have been alive today had the RCMP done their due diligence. My only hope with this whole trial and judgment is that the decision makers will do more in the future. My hope is that the RCMP officers in charge will put members' safety first when making decisions so that those RCMP members that are out there today 
that protect us will be, will be better protected themselves. There's still more to be done. So that's the story of the 2014 Moncton Mountie murders. And I, I think that's the perfect uh, note to end this story on because it the the it, it hits it hits me when I hear her yeah. speaking and because that's it, to me that's where uh, all empathy and they're like that, those poor families those poor children that's right. the wives and mm-hmm. those poor kids having to grow up with no not dad. knowing their dad some of them not knowing their dad at all or one of them not knowing their dad at all uh, other ones having to being old enough to remember when they were told what like the, those poor families yeah. just for this dipshit's uh ego yeah like it just it's i i'm not uh, a proponent of uh, the death penalty but the emotional side of me i would love to see this person suffer yeah, well, I, prison isn't exactly a fun place to be, I don't think. It's not. It's not. But um, I, I would love him to have to suffer all of the emotions that the victims have to go through, and he won't. I don't know if – it. as far as I can gather from what I've learned about this guy, I don't know if he's even capable, you know? That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Another – despicable human being yep. covered yeah there's a lot of them but but again it's for me it's more about it's more about the victims and because that's what really gets me when i was when i was writing this i just like felt horrified because i was picturing like my buddy darren yep. uh he's an rcmp officer back in uh in nova scotia yep and uh i could just you know, kind of picture his face on one of these mounties yeah. as I was, as I was reading, you know, and, and just horrified by it. Um, I mean, he and I grew up together. We actually, uh, there was a point in time where I kind of wanted to be an RCMP officer, believe it or not. So we went to, uh, in grade 11, everybody gets to do job shadowing at mm-hmm. the job that you want to do. So I went job shadowing with the RCMP in New Minas, and so did Darren. So we went to stay at a place. Uh, we boarded at a house there. I think it was relatives of his. And, uh, yeah, so we got to ride, do ride-alongs with the RCMP for a, a whole week, a whole school week. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Would have been fascinating. Yeah, and so... Uh, did I you can't. get a gun? No. Uh, they didn't phew, even give us a uniform or anything. Phew. But I got to ride in the front seat and not the back seat, which is quite, <laughs> you know. But uh, I can't remember the uh, the second Mountie's name, uh, but one was a Newfoundlander and his name was Charlie Babstock. And, and Charlie Babstock was a really, really funny guy. I don't know if you know who the Golers are. Have you ever heard Oh, yes, of yes, okay. yes, yes. So you've heard of the Goalers. Yes, I've read the book. So On South Mountain is the, yes. is the book. We'll yeah. eventually cover that, uh, but I have a Goalers story. Oh, hold on. Don't tell anybody that I read a book. Shh. Oh, right. Scott read a book. Scott didn't read any book. I had it read to me. You probably saw it on the news. I had, William Shatner read it to me. Probably. Right. So anyway, so part of Charlie's uh, beat was driving up on South Mountain, mm. and uh, we were going by the Goalers' place, and uh, 
The Goalers, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, was a family uh, that was deeply invested in incest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can remember on, I think it was W5 or uh, or one of those other TV shows where they interviewed one of the uh, the Goaler family and they, oh, they, really? asked, they asked him, uh, do you know what incest is? Because these people are notoriously low IQ. Yes. And, and all that kind of stuff. Yes. And he said, insects, ain't them them things that crawl around there on the ground? Is that really? That what? is really what he said. So he was asked, do you know what incest is? And he says, insects? Oh, my God. Ain't them them things there crawl around on the ground? Son of a... Well, anyway, so Charlie Babstock and I are driving by. He says, so the Goalers live up here. And I think he saw the look on my face. And he didn't know that I had had a past bad experience at the time. Mm -hmm. So he probably saw me go white as a ghost. Yep. Because I knew the story. I'd seen it many times on the news. And uh, so Charlie played a bit of a joke on me. He went really slowly past their house. (laughs) And he said, we should pull in and have a conversation with him. And I was like... Uh, no, I think I'm okay. <laughs> and, uh, he said, uh, he said, boy, if we stop there, you better put your hand right over your arse. <laughs> Jeez. Like he said that to me. Uh, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Well, I think uh, a lot of officers that I've known and met have great sense of humor. And again, I think it's that whole, yeah. it's such and a challenging you, and, and yeah. traumatic job at times. You have to laugh. You have to find humor in it so you can balance out. Yeah, for sure. And they did. They had a really good sense of humor. The yeah. two guys that I traveled with, I, could, I wish I could remember the other one. Maybe Darren will hear this and, and remind me of who it was. But uh, but they, I, I get what you're saying about being able to, because knowing officers and having good, some good experiences with them, being able to yeah. picture them. I, the I know there's some bad apples. I know there there are some bad apples. I know I'm bad apple, good egg. But I know there's some bad apples in every bunch. Well, and, and there's there's some in the police force. Just there are like some people in the pizza industry. By the nature of what we talk about, we're going to disproportionately highlight the bad apples because we're it's this isn't well sometimes because well, this is why i want do wanted to do this episode specifically right after we did the one with the bungling rcmp officer yes you know because i wanted to show hey uh even though the organization didn't maybe do so well the officers who were there that day did the best they could yeah i i, I uh, despite like i'm i may go off on occasion on uh, about some bad uh, police work. I I have the utmost respect for them. The officers I've been working with on my little thing lately uh, have been just so, so, so supportive and accommodating. And, and uh, You're not talking about that. No, no. Okay. No, no, I'm not talking. I'm just saying they've been very supportive and very, very uh, accommodating and really awesome. So, I mean... Let's just say Scott has somebody who doesn't appreciate him as a human. Oh, I'm sure there's more than one somebody. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, we, we can't talk about it. We no. Can't, we can't elaborate at all because no. it's still ongoing. But yeah. anyway, yeah. and it's not because of this podcast. It's because Scott's a yeah. silly person. I did nothing. No, you didn't do anything. <laughs> I'm not victim blaming. No, no, no. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that when we can. Yep. Um... But yeah, uh, I learned so much on that 
on that week-long ride-along, I learned that, I uh, that uh, you go 10-8 in the morning, and 10-8 is like you're going for coffee, and you go to Tango Hotel. What's Tango Hotel? Tim Hortons. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, boys, we're going 10-8 at Tim Hortons, or at Tango Hotel, sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, it was like every morning, like clockwork, we were at Tango Hotel. I felt like such a cliche. Here I am in a donut shop with the popo. <laughs> well, it's kind of cool, though. It was very yeah. fun. Yeah. That would have been a really neat experience. Do I, they take 44-year-olds for a week, for a week long? No, but uh, what they do in the in our neighborhood, uh, that's the thing. The RCMP does take volunteers into community policing, and I have been considering doing that again. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be kind of a fun thing, and maybe my... Uh, my situation might might actually allow that. Uh, I might have some more time on my hands coming up. So, anyway, uh, that's that's a whole other story altogether. So, so yeah, uh, our lives are interesting. Our sometimes. lives they're fascinating. Well, to us. Uh, so, uh, uh, interestingly, uh, we put up a speakpipe dot com slash dark poutine, uh, so you can call us essentially, and leave a voicemail there. Uh, and our friend Ood, Ood Gallifrey, from the Occultus Veritatis uh, podcast, left a voicemail uh, actually talking about uh, what I talked about in episode 10. He was he just wanted to leave some sentiment, sentiments for us, so here it is. Uh, hello, this is Ood Gallifrey from the Occultus Veritatis podcast. Uh, just wanted to tell Mike that... I thought it was incredibly important and brave for you to share your experience and share your story. I think that going into the future, we definitely have to destigmatize being victims of that stuff. We have to not be shamed into silence. We have to get justice for those that have wronged us. And I think you sharing your story really furthered that cause. So. Brings to you, buddy. Also, I love your show. So thanks for that, Ood. Muchos gracias, sir. Thanks, Ood. Uh, So check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com, for show notes. There's going to be lots there this time. You you can rabbit hole this one. Mike's got so much incredible. I uh, may not share. I can't share everything because I don't want to blow some sources here. uh, Coward. Well... (laughs) I'm, just probably, kidding. I'm kidding. I I'm probably kidding. shouldn't. Uh, if you have any stories, questions, comments, or just want to say hi, you can reach us via email at darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Lots of people are doing that. I love it. Woo-hoo! I get so many emails. Like, I am surprised that uh, people actually listen to this show who I don't know. None of <laughs> I have not received a single email from my mom about this show. <laughs> I, I have. You have? Yeah, yeah. My mom sent me an email. Uh, well, she see, CC'd me in an email for sending it off to the rest of uh, rest of uh, her clan. Yeah. So, for example, we got a uh, an email from Lauren P. from Peoria. And you'll remember Peoria. I do. From our Mark Twitchell episode. Peoria. Uh, the uh, Dexter wannabe. Uh, and she said, right now I'm listening to the episode about Mark Twitchell. I'd heard about him before, but I never knew he'd lived in my hometown. So there you go. We we got to You're ed- educate somebody from Peoria and make fun of your place of where you live. Peoria. And we're very sorry. 
You're awesome, though. You I'm are sure. awesome. She actually fi- finished, so she lives in Chicago now where I'm safe from Whoa. psychopaths and murders. <laughs> <laughs> but didn't, doesn't Donald Trump rave about how... Yeah, they... Chicago is not the, yeah. not, not the uh, utopia. Yeah. It, she she went on to, to give a little bit of background on Peoria and how it's smack dab in the middle of Illinois, uh, like oh. a super conservative suburb far away from the city. It's named after a Native American tribe of oh, the neat. Peoria people. Yeah, so now we know. Hey, thank you. We were told growing up that Oria was a princess of an Indian tribe. Unfortunately, it was quite stupid and had to be reminded to do pretty much everything. Okay. <laughs> While traveling across the Illinois River, the group stopped for a break. Even looking out for her, the girl's father, the chief, commanded her to... Peoria. Oh. Oh. Oh, I should have seen that coming. Oh, Mike, you walked into that one. <laughs> should have seen that coming. You walked into Peoria. it. Peoria. Yeah, so she, she says, thanks for the great storytelling and entertainment. Keep up the great podcasting. Toodles, Lauren. Oh, I do. Thank you, Lauren. And toodles right back. Toodles right back. Uh, yeah, so. Buy a Mike body pillow. There's not going to be any Mike body pillows. Oh, there should be. They would be just a browned thing. Not so what? It would, it would keep... can, can you put a mustache on a body pillow? I mean, you have, it's painted on. I mean, you don't have to chew to drive a taxi. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, inside joke. Inside joke. Very inside. Very, very inside. Um, so please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. to search for Dark Poutine and tell your friends about us if you would like. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory. I fixed it, finally. No, it's you, not ours. No, you got to leave it on mine. Okay. Uh, so we're on iTunes, Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Or you can just simply uh, get us on our host, podbean.com, darkpoutine.podbean.com, or at our website. Lots of you have left five-star reviews and comments on iTunes, and we appreciate each one. If you want to donate to us, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or send us some donut money via PayPal at our email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Every little bit helps. Thanks. And like I said, I may have some more free time on my hands to do this <laughs> podcasting coming up. Uh, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. And we'll let my brother Phil take us out. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. This is Baltic Tea Warfrat brother of Mike Brown, and you've just had your ears filled with dark poutine. Sometimes heavy and meaty, occasionally cheesy, but rarely sorry.
new on Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copy can on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner, all new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.